You're listening to TIP. The profound effect was I realized earlier than maybe I, you know, I would have otherwise that being, say, the CEO of a company, you are the capital allocator for that company. That is your job. Like that is your main job. And even if that capital means hiring a person, you know, and it's more of that qualitative side of the business, you're allocating capital to that. On today's episode, I'm joined by fan favorite Trey Lockerbie. Trey is the co-founder and CEO of the kombucha company, Better Booch, as well as the co-host of The Investor's Podcast flagship show, We Study Billionaires. During our conversation, we cover how his investment strategy has changed with the ever-changing macro landscape, how he analyzes the opportunity costs between individual stocks, what asset classes he invests in, how he became the host of TIP's flagship show, We Study Billionaires, how his kombucha company was able to get stocked at Target and Costco, how being an investor made Trey a better businessman, and a whole lot more. Trey brings a ton of interesting insights given his extensive background running his own business and interviewing countless incredible investors. With that, I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Trey Lockerbie as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Trey Lockerbie. Trey, welcome to the show. Clay, it's so awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, over the past few years, the investment landscape has changed quite a bit and TIP has changed quite a bit with it. How has your investment strategy changed over time with things like the emergence of Bitcoin coming onto the scene, many people paying attention to that, and also the Federal Reserve's just increased influence on the markets? Well, I'll take the first question first, which is my strategy has been evolving pretty rapidly over the last few years. And becoming the host of the show and getting the opportunity to speak with so many smart people who are all using their own strategy has been very influential. And I would say that if anything on my general investing approach has changed, it's been that I've moved further away from being as quantitative as I used to be. I would run every screener I was aware of or that I respected or followed. And then I would kind of cross-examine what companies were showing up on all the different screeners that are either screening for you know cheapness or quality or things like that. And I kind of whittle it down and that would kind of limit down my universe. And that's when I would kind of dig in on the other things like management and, hey, does it fit my circle of competence? Do I understand the business? And nowadays, I generally have set up an approach where I've got Berkshire, I've got indexes, and then I've got my kind of alpha attempts, I would say, right? Using individual stocks. And nowadays, I'm building a watch list based on, honestly, it's based on a lot of the conversations I have from this show. I mean, there's ideas that pop up all the time that kind of just add to my watch list. And then I just keep an eye on them. And I, I learned so much that. You know, it still has to fit into my circle of competence for me to pull the trigger, but that's where I'm kind of limiting down my individual stock picks at the moment. I've been more heavily into indexes and other kind of a commodity type things. And as far as Bitcoin goes, I look at that as sort of um, my store of value savings account. I mean, I, I dollar cost average into that every week. So every Friday, I have a certain dollar amount that goes to my account. And I, that's kind of set it and forget it for me. I honestly don't even watch the Bitcoin price anymore. 
because it just doesn't matter for me. I'm basically just long-term holding and the short-term volatility really means nothing to me. So I just have that as a set of forget it. I almost like don't even think about it as part of my investing quote unquote strategy. It's just sort of like my savings strategy. We can talk about kind of why I look at it that way too, if you want. But TIP has evolved as well and, and the tools have changed over time. But the resources that we have here are just the dream tools that I wanted, you know, from day one. Um, the IRR calculators, the screeners, the ETF comparisons, the correlation tool. I mean, it's all so, so useful. So I use that daily. I can definitely, you know, relate to some of the things you're saying. You have all these different asset classes and, you know, a lot of these things aren't really quantifiable. You know, you might want to get exposure to say the commodity sector or get exposure to say a hard asset or exposure to Bitcoin, but it's like, okay, I have these extra dollars. How do I, you know, allocate to those asset classes? Now, related to the individual stocks piece, do you still find yourself analyzing new companies when you're investing in these stocks or do you just continue to add to some of your existing positions given you know all the things you have going on in your own life? Yeah, so what I'd say there about like my allocation to individual stocks, I have a 10% allocation limit. It kind of comes from a niche popri, and that's just totally arbitrary. It's different for everybody, but I'll generally take a position and it won't be too small. I'll probably come in at like 2 to 3% if I really like something and then I will build it up from there. But I also because I'm, you know, I got a limited amount of capital, I want to be mindful of, you know, giving other stocks an opportunity as well, not eating up the whole thing, which is, you know, I'm a big believer in concentration, but uh I'd only do very 10% like high conviction bets like that uh, pretty rarely. I mean, every so often, but pretty rarely. And I would say if you looked at my portfolio today, it might not surprise people, but my circle of competence at for the time being is very much in food and beverage. So I have a lot of food and beverage type stocks. I have grocery chains, I have food distributor companies, I have some individual food companies themselves, because that's just a business that I understand. And yeah, you know, funny story about that. One of my holdings is a company, it's a distributor called UNFI. And when Stig and I were talking about me becoming the host of We Study Billionaires, he asked me to do an intrinsic value write-up. And I said, UNFI. And I wrote a whole thing up about it because I thought it was significantly undervalued. And at the time, I think it was trading around $6. And today it's at almost $42. So I was like, you know, I, I did pretty well on that one. But things like that, you know, that are very much, even if I'll come across certain companies in conversation with other people, if it ultimately isn't something that I truly understand, I generally stay away from it. And I try to diversify into other industries as well. But I kind of tend to, you know, my bias tends to lead me to food and beverage. Congrats on that pick with UNFI. That's a pretty impressive IRR over the, you know, just what, two or three years. <laughs> to be honest, so UNFI, just so people know, is the primary distributor for Whole Foods. And my thesis at the time was really that Amazon should just buy you because they're basically the exclusive distributor. And since Amazon owns Whole Foods, you would think that they might want to own the supply chain as well. And it was so cheap. Like the, it was like a few hundred million bucks or something like that. Like they really could have picked it up. But luckily for me, they, they didn't. And it's gone a little higher. When you do look at individual stocks, do you still use the IRR tool in the TIP finance that you mentioned earlier? Or how are you, you know, looking at the opportunity cost between one stock versus another? That's exactly it. I mean, so this question is interesting to me because this is something I've been thinking a lot about. So, for example, this goes back to actually to a conversation I had with Morgan Housel. And we talked about how a lot of people don't take the first step in investing. And what I mean by that is they don't establish what is quote unquote enough, right? So, even though this is like the most boring thing you could think of, 
going through sort of a retirement calculator and figuring out what is ultimately enough for you will help you determine the yield that you're trying to get. You know, rather than just being like, hey, I just, yeah, I want a 15% yield or I want a 20% yield. Like, well, yeah, everybody does. But, you know, that can get you into a lot of trouble if you're not really going off of any foundation that's getting you to your ultimate goals. So for me, you know, I did ultimately define my yield. And so the companies that I do look at, I do obviously go compare them to my goals. And it's usually, uh, 15%, honestly. And you know, if I had more discretionary income that I was allocating to investing, it might be less, might be like 7%. But I want to kind of, I'm starting with a smaller account and I want to be highly concentrated or as much as possible. So I'm looking for things, you know, when you're only talking about a 10 position portfolio, probably, you know, you should probably allocate that to something that is going to get you at least 15% or so. So for me, that's what I look for. So if I if I do, but it's the last thing I look for. So it's got to meet my circle of competence, it's got to be cheap. And it's got to compare to the other opportunity costs of the portfolio holdings I have. But that's sort of the last thing I check is the yield. It's funny you mentioned Morgan Housel and you know finding that point where enough is enough for you. I recently started doing many episodes for Millennial Investing, you know, released every Saturday. And I actually did a book review on the psychology of money. That's episode 171 for those of you who haven't tuned in yet. And during that book, Housel tells the story of Jesse Livermore. I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, but he's one of the greatest traders to ever live. He made over a billion dollars during the Great Depression. You know, he'd caught the downturn. Everyone thought any trader was just going to get wiped out during that time period, but he was actually on the right side of the trade. And what Livermore ended up doing was continuing to bet the farm on his highest conviction bets. You know, he'd use leverage, he'd just take these extremely risky bets. You know, it worked out for him for a while, but eventually he lost everything because, you know, he never found that point where enough was enough for him. And essentially, he was just like a gambler. You know, you can be like the best poker player in the world, but if you keep taking excessive bets, eventually you're going to, you know, have that unlucky swing and just get completely wiped out. Yeah. And I believe Jesse Livermore built up a huge amount of wealth and lost it multiple times, at least like twice. Yeah. So he was almost a degenerate gambler at, at the end of things, even though he was so talented when it came to investing. It's a wild story. And that actually brings up like a really interesting point, which is, you know, when to sell and when to do less, because that's the hardest part of investing, in my opinion. And that's, I think, why Buffett and Munger are so adamant about just buy and hold strategies because it kind of, in theory, eliminates that issue, which is like where you get caught up the most, right? Should I sell? Is it overvalued? Now, sometimes Buffett and Munger's actions don't correlate directly with their words, but I think generally speaking, the theory is correct. And knowing when to sell has been really interesting. I don't think I'm that good at it. I will say that I've just for fun, I have been kind of in and out of Tesla, and I've been calling the top and bottom of that pretty well. You know, just because it's hitting this range of seven hundred to like twelve hundred, and I've just ridden that wave like a couple of times, and that's more for fun. It's more just for like educational purposes. And again, this is all just like in pursuit of my own style, my own strategy, what feels right to me. And I will say that you know, after ten years or so of doing this stuff, I feel, which is not a long time in the world of investing, right? But for me, I feel like I'm getting into a, a little bit more of the like Jedi mode where it's like the going off the gut, right? It's like I've seen so much, there's a lot of pattern recognition. And sometimes you just feel something and you're like, nah, it's time to sell. There might not even be a quantitative reason, but I've been noticing that more and more. And we should talk about maybe some indicators that maybe lead into those decisions. But really, it, it's really hard to explain. And I don't have a great system. I'm not like a Brian Feraldi with the, a 15 point checklist. Unfortunately, I should be, but I'm not there yet. 
hey, there's a lot to be said for having that intuition. You know, sometimes you just can't explain something. It just feels right. And, you know, you mentioned Tesla. I have to ask, is that something you're a big believer in for the long term? You know, say we see the depression type scenario that people, you know, everyone's talking about now. Is that something you would consider adding to, you know, as a long term holding or what are your thoughts on Tesla? Yeah. So I would actually say I'm, I am long term very bullish on Tesla. I own a Tesla and my dream is to have Tesla solar panels on my roof that are powering my house and charging my car. And I really believe in that future. I think it's just an exciting one. And to be quite honest, I've followed Elon long enough and followed Tesla long enough that I do feel like it's a business I actually really do understand. Now, I think a lot of people get caught up on comparing Tesla to other car companies. I think that's actually a big mistake. I've fallen into that trap. It probably kept me out of Tesla too long in the beginning. But I actually just heard Elon talk about this at an event a few weeks ago, and he describes Tesla as almost 12 different startups. And they're vertically integrated. They have a lot of supply chain down and handled internally. And a lot of people also get tripped up on this idea that Elon sells the dream. And as much as he does do that, you know, the solar panels are kind of a big one that haven't really come to fruition, at least the, the tiles. I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that. I mean, I, I think as an entrepreneur, I've experienced a little bit of that myself. You sometimes do have to sell the dream in order to make it happen because it's like a chicken or the egg situation where you have to, you know, where do you start these? The money doesn't just appear. You have to go get it and finance these things to make them happen. And he's been really good at doing that so far. So I'm really bullish on Elon. I'm really bullish on Tesla long term. You know, I do think for where the company is today, it's been in this kind of, I think in the 1200 range, it's been a little overheated. So that's why I kind of been, have been writing that up and down. But I don't recommend that. I mean, I think if it gets, you know, like today's price is probably a fair price, in my opinion. And I think it's in the like 700s or 800s now. And buying and holding that thing for 20 years, I think you're going to do just fine. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I listen to a lot of the We Study Billionaires episodes and love the variety of guests you, Preston, Stig, and William are able to bring onto the show. And I can also relate to, you know, seeing that variety, talking to someone that, you know, is pitching gold or pitching silver, talking to someone that's pitching, you know, an all individual stock portfolio or Bitcoin. I think like hearing all these different viewpoints can like help keep you grounded to where like you're not falling into this eco chamber where you're hearing the same stuff over and over again. You know, you have that confirmation bias where you're only looking for the information you want to hear. And I think you and I both know that with high inflation, it could be a really tough road for stocks, you know, over the next, say, five, 10 years. Has that led you to allocating to some of these hard assets like commodities, gold or silver? Or what are your thoughts on that approach? I'm going to answer that, but I want to touch on what you just said a little bit because I do actively seek out differing opinions. And it actually comes from this position I was talking with Dan Rasmussen, who I know you've had on your show about just being almost a nihilist where you kind of believe no one knows nothing. While we tend to put experts on the show and we take their advice, everything should be with a grain of salt. Everyone has their own motives or their own biases and no one can predict the future. So while it's such a fun game, it's important, I think, to always remember not fall into any one ideology. And, you know, Buffett and Munger, it's the same thing. When I started, I was very much a Buffettologist for a very long time. And then, you know, got introduced to Ray Dalio and said, well, wait a second, you know, and then that kind of was like a gateway to other people. And, you know, I had just had Brent Johnson and actually yesterday I had a guy named Jeff Snyder and he was pontificating on this idea that is flies in the face of everything I've learned on the show. Like he doesn't think there's too many dollars in the system. He thinks there's actually a dollar shortage. He thinks that while a lot of people we know think that the dollar, even Ray Dalio is saying that the dollar might be losing its world reserve currency status, he thinks it's the exact opposite. So it's just so fun to get differing opinions that stress test your own framework because that's ultimately what we're, we're trying to, to do. And one of the guests I really like a lot who I've had on my show is Josh Young, and he's an oil expert. So he actually got me really interested in oil and it just happened to be around the time that Buffett was also buying Occidental. So I have a position there in oil based on this thesis that oil is going higher. And I actually think it is. And it's not due to really any other reason than just the lack of investment that's gone into expanding production capacity. I think that's just been completely ignored. And I think that a lot of businesses and not just oil companies, but a lot of them took the stimulus and just bought shares back and they didn't invest in the long term. And that's a big problem. So now I'm seeing you know, oil, I think it's going to go a lot higher and I have a position there. I have sadly been holding gold and silver also for many years. And it's a small position. It kind of goes to that all-weather mindset, but they've been a real drag on my portfolio, quite frankly. You know, Gold popped a little bit as of late, but silver has just been a dog. And luckily, it's a very small position. And to be quite honest, one of my best trades of the last two years was actually just buying a commodity ETF. I bought GSG and that's been my biggest performer over the last couple of years. Whether it goes higher from here, I'm not really sure. But I will say this kind of ties in with inflation where it is. I mean, it's important to understand what makes up the CPI number. 
And a lot of it is oil. A lot of it's energy, really. It's oil and natural gas. And if oil is going higher, then you can kind of expect the CPI number is going to stay higher or you know, stay the same or go higher. And that's kind of my thesis right now. Now, that's there's a lot of people I interview who think that inflation is going to roll over any minute now, and that might be the case. But I have concerns just because of the oil side of things. I think a lot of the other components in CPI will come down, used cars, things like that. I mean, a lot of things that are stuck in supply chain issues, I think will get resolved and that, that will help. But since it's such a big component, I'm not so sure. And then there's the whole food side of things, which is basically the other major input for CPI. And with the war in Ukraine and things not being planted, there's probably going to be some supply chain issues with food. I mean, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world and they make up almost 60, 70% of the carbs that people intake around the world. We could supplement that with rice, you know, but the usual commodities like bread and pasta and some things like that might be in short supply later this year. So I have a thesis that inflation is probably going to continue to go higher. And to me, that means that commodities will probably continue to do well. Yeah, I feel like the general consensus is, yeah, inflation is going to come back down. But you know, how many people are taking that kind of approach you're taking where, you know, maybe inflation doesn't come down? Like, am I hedged against that sort of scenario? You know, it's kind of a shorter term approach. You know, a lot of these stock investors will be like, yeah, you know, stocks might go down, but eventually they'll come back around. And I'd like to talk more about this macro theme. You know, I love the guests you guys bring on. Brent Johnson, you mentioned, Luke Groman, Lynn Alden. You know, inflation looked like it might have rolled over. CPI, that number, you know, hit 8.5 and then down to 8.3%. And the federal funds rate is still below 1% at the time of this recording. Is it possible for the Fed to bring down inflation without breaking the economy? That's always hard to say. I will say that I think the Fed is operating under their dual mandate and saying, all right, unemployment is low and inflation is high. And that's our dual mandate. So we have to cover the one and we're going to let the treasury figure out, or you know, everyone else figure out what to do with the rest. I don't think they care if high-flying growth stocks get hit and go down 30%. You know, I don't think they care a whole lot. I think their main concern is runaway inflation. And there are some reasons someone would say that what the Fed is doing is just expectation setting. And it's almost like placebo. Like They have to raise rates to control things, even though it might not actually tighten the monetary supply. That's a whole other discussion. But I think that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates as much as they possibly can. And what's going to break first, it's really hard to say, but I, I honestly can't imagine what it would be. The dollar's just going to continue to go higher which would make debt around the world more expensive for everybody holding it, which means they have to devalue their own currency to cover it, or they have to liquidate their positions. So that's where you can feel a lot of pain once the dollar keeps climbing higher. And so I guess long story short is I think the Fed can and will continue to raise rates, which is a concern. And the only other question I guess from that is how much is already priced into the market? And I don't know. <laughs> you know, one thing I've learned just recently, you know, with this rise of inflation is people talking about the Taylor rule. Could you talk about what exactly that is and how that potentially plays in here? Yeah. So it's got basically three indicators, the federal funds rate, price level, and changes in real income. And basically the idea is that interest rates should follow the Taylor rule target. And right now there's a huge gap. I think the Taylor rule is suggesting that interest rates should be in the like 8% or higher range. And we're at less than 1%. So you see this huge gap, but historically, it tracks pretty closely, a fairly good correlation. So it's just suggesting that interest rates are going higher. Is it something that the Fed uses as a metric? I'm not entirely sure, but I think that a lot of people look at that and say, well, if history is any indicator, then interest rates could and will probably go higher. Yeah, I almost think of it as like a natural law where 
you know, if someone's lending out money, then that that should at least cover the inflation rate. Well, CPI inflation today is eight over eight percent, so your interest should be at least at that level. You know, over time, it's generally followed that rule, but there are times where there's exceptions where you know crazy things can happen in the economy, and for whatever reason, you know, it might not always follow that rule. It's just kind of like a general rule of thumb is the way I think about it. Yeah. For some reason, I kind of have this sense that like all bets are off. And I could be really wrong. It might be like that this time is different thing where really it's not at all. But I kind of feel like the playbook has been thrown out the window, you know, and I think it does go back to 2008. So when you kind of go back to in history to like even the 70s and other other time periods, you know, first of all, we didn't have nearly the amount of debt that we have now. So yes, they were able to raise interest rates up to 15%. I think we had a 30% debt to GDP at the time. You know, now we're pushing, we're like 120%. That's a totally different scenario. And I'm not sure how much the Fed is considering that when they, like I said, I think they're going to say, well, the Treasury will figure that out. And you know, maybe we continue to debase the currency and buy up more bonds to cover it. But I think that once 2008 happened, we started the TARP program and the money printer started, I was going to think of a good analogy, the money printer starts roaring a little bit, if you will. I think the playbook has kind of gone out the window. I don't think the Fed will be able to raise rates much beyond, say, 2%. And before something breaks. And it's because of this, you know, what Ben Bernanke would call the financial accelerator. They lifted the interest rates 25 basis points, and you saw the NASDAQ sell off 30%. And uh, that's the accelerator at work, meaning these little butterfly effects create much bigger implications around the world. And I think whether it's the debt level or whether it's just the currencies around the world, something will break. And I think the Fed is going to keep moving as is, and they're very reactionary. So I think they're probably going to overdo it before they correct. But the markets will probably get a lot worse before they get better. Yeah, you mentioned that you know you don't expect the federal funds rate to go above two percent. I just pulled up a quick chart just to look at you know what that looks like, and I've heard people mention that the federal funds rate when it goes up, it's never gone up above where it previously kind of topped out. You know, in two thousand, I see it hit six point five percent. Two thousand seven, five point two percent, and then early twenty nineteen, it was two point four percent. So, like that two percent mark you mentioned, Neil. If that downtrend sort of continues, that seems to be in line. Let's talk a little bit more about Bitcoin. When it comes to Bitcoin, it's almost forced us to think about the world in an entirely different way. You know, you mentioned earlier how Dalio really changed the way you think about you know the investment landscape and the the investment world. Preston would tell you that Bitcoin is a value investment. It's a value play, which most value investors, Buffett, Munger, you know, those types of people would just completely roll their eyes at. With that, I'd like to ask you, do you see Bitcoin as something that's risky or are people misperceiving what it actually is or is it more of a value play? So here's where I am today, and it might be different than what people expect. But basically, I'm of the opinion that Bitcoin today is an incredible store of value asset. Now, I do also believe that I've seen it. I mean, I've seen the infrastructure being built on top of it in layer two and three, even now, where it could be a very reliable medium of exchange over time. But that doesn't take away the fact that it's a very deflationary currency. And if you look back at history, that hasn't worked so well, right? If it's a gold standard or whatever have you, it's never really worked. And so the reason why this is what I believe, and I would love to see this future unfold potentially if it goes hopefully smoothly, which is unlikely. But if you're bullish on Bitcoin as a medium of exchange long-term, I think you're really voting for a completely different looking future. It would be a future where people work less, things get cheaper over time, and 
there is more, hopefully, abundance of things. But I don't know if consumption, you know, I don't know what that would do to consumption. The theory is that people won't consume because the price will be cheaper tomorrow. But people consume what they want to consume. They're not driven by needs only. You know, They're driven by wants, and they're going to do that. And if I were running Better Booch in a deflationary environment, you can make the argument that I wouldn't buy tea to make today because it's going to be cheaper tomorrow. You know, But over time, that just means my profits are getting stronger over time as well. So I would love to see that world unfold. I think that would eliminate a lot of our issues in the, around the world. Like Our consumption is really what's causing a ton of trouble in this world. And I think that the inflationary monetary system we have obviously just drives more and more consumption, probably more than necessary. So I guess what am I saying? I'd say that right now, I basically supplement Bitcoin as my savings account, and I don't necessarily look at it like a value investment. I do think I would argue that, yes, you can generate yield off Bitcoin. A lot of people don't think you can. I think you can. I've seen it. You can lend it out and get a yield. But that's not really how I look at it. I would actually rather not rehypothecate or have the risk of rehypothecation through somebody else just for a little bit of yield personally. So for me, it's an asset like a piece of property that I'm going to hold forever and probably pass down to my kids and they're going to pass it down to their kids. And that's how I look at it. I actually see a world where Bitcoin and say the US dollar can coexist in like a very friendly way where, yeah, if they continue to debase the currency as they have over the last few years, great, you can opt out. You've got an exit ramp you know, for your discretionary income or savings. You can park it in Bitcoin. Does that mean we have to buy our coffee with Bitcoin? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. You can switch back. You know, you can convert back to US dollar to do other things. And generally speaking, the monetary network we have works pretty well. It's not perfect, but it, it works pretty well. So I'm a big believer in Bitcoin long term, but it's kind of for reasons that are less extreme probably than some of the folks we interview on the show. My thinking definitely aligns with what you just described. You know, I'll tell someone about Bitcoin and they'll be like, Bitcoin is like the dumbest thing. Like no one is buying anything with Bitcoin. Why would you want to, you know, own or no one uses it? Like what's going on? I'm like, you know, our current payment system, like it works fine. I can go to the coffee shop down the street and I can buy my coffee just fine. The problem is the dollar doesn't hold its value over time. It's lost over 99% of its value against gold over the last hundred years. And, you know, many people live in a country where the currency is just like falling much faster than the US dollar. You know, like one or two billion people are living in very high inflation environments and they don't have access to something like the stock market. So I like that. I've heard you use the analogy of thinking of it like Manhattan real estate that, you know, you hang on to, you have your piece of the, your digital stake of the network. Yeah. And imagine that in reality, right? Imagine there was a piece of New York real estate property that someone was like, hey, you can buy 50 bucks of this at a time if you want over a period of years or whatever it is. And dollar cost average into a piece of real estate like that. I mean, I think everyone would jump on that. So that's been an old analogy, but you know, that I've heard for years, but I still feel like it holds up. I feel like, you know, as an asset, and when I say about an asset, I do also see the fact that banks will probably look at it as pristine collateral. I think that nations, you know, sovereign nations will look at it like pristine collateral. When you're talking billions of dollars and things like that, it makes a lot of sense. It will make sense for less money. And with the Lightning Network today, as it is, you can argue it does already. But I look at it like the best piece of collateral you could possibly have. And that's what my kids will probably use to fund whatever they want to do in the future. Yeah, that is an very exciting future. I like the idea of you know having the US dollar work alongside Bitcoin because you know I've read Saifedean's pieces. You know he talks about time preference and you know with the US dollar, like you mentioned, people want to consume, consume, consume. You know because their dollar's losing value, they know it's not going to be worth as much over time. Even if they might not know it, they're you know almost incentivized to act in that way. And 
I was at the Bitcoin conference with you in Miami and I was at a couple of events where Jordan Peterson was speaking and he was like, yeah, Bitcoin might bring all of these great things to the world. But if we use that as our currency, we don't really know what implications that'll bring because we've never had anything like it. You know, gold was similar, but it wasn't near as deflationary as Bitcoin. So there's the saying, be careful what you wish for. That's it. Like I said, the fact that the US has been as amenable to Bitcoin as they have to date is encouraging to me. I think that they probably see it, either they're not paying enough attention, or maybe they see it as a means like I'm talking about where, hey, we could use this as really good collateral over time and make settlements in a different way or store value in a different way. And I I think they can coexist. I mean, I should also mention that my opinion is very myopic and biased because I live in the US. And, you know, there are countries, as you mentioned, that are just their dollars are getting inflated away, like Turkey and a a number of others, Venezuela. And so is there a better use case there? Absolutely. You know, I think so. When the inflation is just, you know, arguably more aggressive, maybe that changes things. I don't know. I live in the US and I we have the world reserve currency. And I would like to see it stay that way because I'm biased. And I generally like the US having that kind of power, I guess, over the world. But you know, if I could like snap my fingers and create a future, it would look like a Bitcoin future where things are abundant. Consumption might be less because it doesn't need to be as high and people get richer over time for working less. That just sounds like an ideal scenario, but I don't think we get there in a very smooth fashion. I'd like to chat about you know, your role with We Study Billionaires and TIP, as well as, you know, what you got going on a Better Booch. But before we move on to that, I'd like to ask you if there's anything you're keeping your eye on over the next few months as far as the investment landscape. Well, yeah, I can tell you I'm keeping my eye on a, on a new indicator that came up from our conversations with Dan Rasmussen, which is the high yield spread. Basically, that's the high yield debt interest rate over basically a, a treasury rate. And that has been this really interesting indicator for if we're entering into a crisis or not. And I think right now and for the foreseeable future, we're kind of walking that razor's edge of are we back into a crisis or not? And so, you know, Interestingly enough, today it's at about 4.2, which in Dan's opinion is kind of right at the threshold of entering into that crisis area. And six is we're definitely in crisis mode. And every time it gets to six, you kind of see it skyrocket higher before it comes back down. The trend line is going up. So it does kind of seem like we're entering into the crisis phase, but I'm watching it very closely because I really like that as a tool. It talks to how many companies can finance what they're trying to do and how much liquidity they'll have access to. So it's a really good economy indicator. And so, and I think that ultimately will affect the stock market. But so for me, I'm watching that pretty closely. As far as like asset classes, I'm watching oil very closely. I'm kind of strong opinions weekly held with it. I have a lot of reasons why you know I do think it's going higher, but I'll be quick to change my mind if that's starting not to prove out. That being said, the fact that Buffett bought as much Chevron and Occidental as he did lately gives me a lot of conviction as it typically does. But at the same time, because I hold so much Berkshire, sometimes I don't go as hard on things because I'm like, I've already got it you know, in that position. So I have... I'm looking at my portfolio right now. I'm trying to see what else I've got. It's pretty defensive right now, if I'm being honest. And the last thing I'm kind of looking at is just really great companies getting cheaper and cheaper, really no matter what it is. There's an argument right now to be made that Google's in a fair price range. I'm no expert on Google, but I am keeping a close eye on things like that. I'm more driven to small caps at the moment though, because I'm running a very concentrated portfolio. That's typically where I'm going to find, I think, the yield I'm looking for. And yeah, I think that over the next six months, there's probably going to be some really good opportunities to find some really cheap stuff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I 100% agree. I actually had an episode talking all about Google. That was 173. It was just last week prior to this recording. Let's talk a little bit more about you know what you're working on. Step outside of the investment world for a second. You've run a very successful company, Better Boots, and you are also the host of We Study Billionaires podcast. You know, I can't help but think on top of running, you know, a business that does seven figures per year, and, you know, you have your family, you have all these things going on. What led you to want to interview and learn from billionaires on the side? Well, to be completely honest, it wasn't really a, a dream or a goal of mine. I will tell you this much though, because it's just kind of interesting. You know, this is my California yogi spiritual framework in mind, but you know, I was leaving my office at Better Booch one day. And I just had this like overwhelming amount of feeling of gratitude. So I was driving home. I was like, wow, how cool is this? I'm leaving this business that I started. I'm driving in the car that I've always wanted. I'm going to my house that I love to see my family that it just couldn't be more perfect for me. So 
I just had this overwhelming sense of gratitude. And I was listening to the podcast. This is before, obviously, I was a host because I've been listening to it for since its inception. And I was listening to it on the way home. And I had this thought that was like, what could possibly make my life even better? And I was like, Hmm. I guess if I were like the host of the show, I mean, I, it was just, but you got to understand like at that time, there was no prospect of that. It was like such a wild thought. First of all, I don't come from a finance background. Preston and Stig were doing quite well on their own. And there was just really no reason for that to happen. So I'm saying all that to say, I don't know if it was a manifestation of sorts or whatever, but within a couple of weeks or so, they announced that they were looking for a host and Preston was going to go full-time Bitcoin. And to me, because I had had that thought so recently, I think I was just like, oh, well, maybe I'll throw my hat in the ring. you know. So the reason for that is not so much because it's like some egotistical thing. It's more because I'm a constant learner. And I just thought, how cool would it be to do what these guys are doing, interviewing all these amazing people? And who knows what conversations happened before and after the recording or behind the scenes, like what relationships are being built. And that just seemed like such an amazing thing that would be a huge advantage to access and just learn from the best minds in the world. I mean, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. It was a really long shot that they take a chance on me like they did, but I'm sure glad they did because I've been really enjoying it. That's awesome. And you know, you guys are bringing on just like these incredible people. Many of them are billionaires, which is pretty incredible that these billionaires would want to give up the time to, you know, be so giving and just give out this information for free to all these podcast listeners. Are there any billionaires or people you've had on the show that, you know, have had a really big impact on you and how you think, whether that be, you know, people you've interviewed recently or maybe people, you know, you've listened to from Preston and Stig early on? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm trying to give a really honest answer. You know, I did my top takeaways episode at the end of last year. So if I look at that, because that was kind of an indicator of who I was really had an impact on me, it was people like Howard Marks, of course, Jeremy Grantham, but it had up and comers too, like Brian Feraldi in there. And, you know, so it's a wide range. It's not just the billionaires. A lot of the takeaways I have come from more up and comer types. I mean, Dan Rasmussen recently had some really great insights. And Brent Johnson, I really like. So yeah, it's really hard to say. With all of that said, it can kind of become like alphabet soup in your brain because you're hearing so many different opinions all the time. Or if you're doing your job correctly, you are. I can definitely relate to some of the things you're saying. You know, we were talking about earlier how you know we're bringing in all these different types of guests onto TIP, and you know, getting all these different viewpoints. And when I was thinking about you know how. Some of the people at TIP invest. You know, I think of Preston, he's very into Bitcoin. Then I think of Stig. You know, I don't want to speak for Stig, but it's almost like he's taken this Ray Dalio approach where he's brought in these uncorrelated bets. And I almost think of it like building a bulletproof portfolio. You know, you have some Bitcoin, you have some, say, Berkshire Hathaway, you have some gold. And it's like through any economic environment, there's no way you're not going to survive, you know, going through that. And you know, that's the benefit of bringing on all these different types of guests. But on the other hand, you know, you mentioned the alphabet soup analogy where, you know, you have all these like, you know, 100 different viewpoints, like how can you, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together to, you know, to make it make more sense. So it's a double edged sword, I would say. Yeah. Basically, after my conversation with Jeff Snyder yesterday, and we were going over this huge macro idea of why we're in a dollar shortage and all, and we're comparing that to Brent Johnson's work. And then we're comparing that to even what Preston has come up with. And at the end of the episode, I was like, you know, this almost has an adverse effect on me where I retreat to Buffetology again. And I'm just sort of like, you know what? This is over my head. I don't want to pay attention to it. I'd rather just go buy a company like Dairy Queen. Like that's, I've just been kind of retreating more and more to that. The more that I learn, 
it's like the more I don't know and the more I kind of just retreat back to buffetology. But I'm going to continue to learn because I just find it fascinating. That's so funny. Transitioning to talk about your company, Better Booch. You know, when I came into TIP, I had to try it. I like kombucha and now I like kombucha even more since I've had, you know, your tea. It's just so much better. The name's pretty fitting. I just love it. If you're interested in kombucha, I highly recommend checking it out. If the kombucha you've had is like just tastes terrible, then you haven't had real kombucha yet. Talk to me about the experience of scaling this business. I've heard you mention that you started out at farmers markets, just passing it out. I see videos of you, you know, on the street just like handing out can by can, which is pretty cool coming from the founder. You know, talk to me about the experience of scaling from a farmers market to now being in Costco. Well, first of all, I really appreciate your comments there about the product. And yeah, it's always hard to transition into something like kombucha from investing. On my Twitter, I have you know Buffett, Bitcoin, and Better Booch still figuring out how they go together. That's how I feel. I don't know how the three of them go together, but somehow that's what makes up my mind. You know, So yeah, I'll do my best to transition here. But basically, the experience of scaling it has been a wide spectrum because in the early days, we were bootstrapping. So we bootstrapped the business for about six years. And when I say bootstrapping, I mean it in every sense of the word. So for example, we wanted to use purified water. Well, we literally couldn't afford a purification system. You know, that could do tens of gallons at a time. So I would load up my car with those five gallon jugs, drive it to the Ralphs. There was a little like purified water dispenser. You put a quarter in and it gives you a gallon. And I would fill up like 10 of those, put in my car, take them back, brew some tea with it. I mean, I would go buy one case of bottles. Yeah, we started out with bottles, just so you know. I go to the store and buy like 36 bottles to take three cases to a farmer's market. And then over time, as it built up, I ultimately was able to buy a pallet at one point, which is like, you know, 300 cases, let's say. But I couldn't afford the freight to get the pallet to our facility. So I took my minivan down and I unstacked the pallet into my van, got to the brewery, and then put it all back onto a pallet. So when I say bootstrapping, that's what I mean. I mean, like those are like penny pinching things out of pure necessity. So when we got to these inflection points where Ash and I, we feel like we've had two or three of these inflection points where we get to this crossroads and we have to say, well, are we doing this or not? You know, are we really doing this or not? Because if we're really doing this, then there's a whole another huge commitment ahead of us. So the first one, for example, was like signing a two-year lease on our brewery, on our first brewery. It's like, okay, two years. You know, at the time that was like, woof, that's a that's a big commitment. As of late, it's been more things like, should we take on outside capital? Because if we really need to do this, it requires a lot of money, actually. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people get this. This could tie back to the Bitcoin thing a little bit. We can talk about why. But basically, I don't think enough people appreciate this, but there is usually this like chasm between startup mode and at scale. And that chasm, it's like there's a book called No Man's Land. It's kind of about this where there's no bridge. It's like you have to cross this chasm and make it to the other side at scale because there's just this awkward moment where you're too big to be small and too small to be big. And you either can't get financing or you can get financing, but not enough. There's a lot of interesting things we've experienced at that stage. But a lot of businesses, I think even software businesses and you name it, there's that inflection point where they have to scale. And that usually requires a period of running a deficit in your business. And that's really hard. And uh, we've been doing it the last couple of years with Better Booch, taking on outside capital just so we could get the capacity we needed to go into Target, go into Costco, as you mentioned, going into Walmart, Sprouts and Whole Foods. And um, so in my opinion, it's been the spectrum where we've experienced everything from the far end of bootstrapping to now we've to date raised about 10 million bucks and we've put that to work. So it's been a very interesting journey. I've learned a ton. 
but it's not without its anxiety and challenges. And my wife and I both have one too many sleepless nights trying to get through it all, but we love it. And I would say that if you are an entrepreneur and starting out and you're looking to do something, you have to make sure it's a product that you actually love because you won't get out of bed to just do it for the money. I know that all too well. There's been too many days where I'm like, I would have just given up. But I was like, I really believe in this product and I really love this product and I love the brand. So I get up and go to work and that's what it takes. Really cool story. And this has reminded me of a tweet I read the other day from Nick Huber. You know, he's a big fan of running these small physical businesses. You know, and the tweet was about, you know, a lot of people say, like, you know, you should do a business online. Doing stuff online just makes things so much easier. You know, you have the whole world to sell to. You have these powerful platforms like Amazon. You can put your product up there and put it in front of millions of people. But Nick was saying in his tweet, no, you should do things in the physical world. There's like so much less competition in the physical world. You only have the guy across the street to really compete with. So it's an interesting kind of perspective to think about how we have this physical and digital world where that relationship between the two and how there's so many ways to go about running a business. So funny enough, I like to make this joke where I had this idea for the business because I was brewing the product at home, but it really wasn't until I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And I like to joke that I read that and I was like, oh, starting a business is so easy, kind of because you lay out what you just said. And then that kind of gave me the kick to go start the business. But then I did the complete opposite of everything in that book. I was like, okay, locally sourced, handcrafted, everything that was completely the opposite of that book. So I kind of like to joke that it got my start, but like in a totally different way. And to Nick's point, I think too many people just have software type businesses in mind. They're not giving enough appreciation to the real commodities like food and beverage and things like that. You know what's so funny? I can go to the doctor's office and when it says occupation, or usually if you're filling something out, say there's a drop down menu for occupation or industry, food and beverage, never listed. Never listed. Can you believe that? It's like one, we do it three times a day, but that's how overlooked it is as an industry. It's mind boggling. You've recently got stocked in Costco and Target. How in the world were you able to do this? Like I mentioned, Amazon, they allow anyone to put a listing up on Amazon. Costco and Target, there's a limited amount of space and shelving space that people can put their products. So how'd you make that sale and what was that like? Well, it took years, uh, quite frankly, just to get the meeting. And as you would expect, no one's probably surprised by that. But it takes a long time. You don't usually just start out at Costco. You have to build a story. You know, you start wherever you can. So interestingly enough, you know, we've been in Whole Foods and a couple of regions for many years, but haven't gotten the opportunity to go national. So while we're waiting for that opportunity to come, companies like Walmart approached us and said, hey, we want to go national. And so you say, well, all right. <laughs> I mean, that's the bird in the hand. I got to take it and grow my business. And so we did that. And that kind of proved to Costco that we could sell in mass type scenarios in stores. So I think that helped. And usually in my industry, even though in my opinion, this is kind of archaic, it's still very heavily broker driven. So there's a lot of brokers that represent many brands and they're the ones who meet with the buyers. It's rare that the founder or people like even the sales reps get an opportunity to meet with buyers. It's a little bit like you know, you can imagine in the 80s or 90s, people go out golfing and it's like this broker and the buyer. They've got the relationship and he says, Hey, can you put better booch in for me? And the guy goes, All right, let's do it. But I mean, that's like the simplified version of it. But usually what I do, it's actually a real estate business. So grocery stores, if you think about it, they're focused on dollars per linear square foot. So that little shelf space that I take up with better booch, that is money in their eyes. And if your product isn't selling fast enough and not generating enough dollars per linear square foot, they're going to put in something else that does. So you have to build this story that shows not only can you sell, but you're selling compared better than the competition or other products that are taking up that space. And so when you get the meetings, 
that's always the argument that has to be made. And you have to convince them of that. So with Costco and with Target, both of those, we went through brokers, uh, but it took years just to get a meeting or two and finally get an opportunity. Time and time again, I feel like you've mentioned this idea that Buffett says he's a better businessman because he's an investor and he's a better investor because he is a businessman. What are some ways in which this is applied to your own company? I'm super curious. So the reason I go back to that quote so often is it did have a profound effect on how I ran my business. And the profound effect was I realized earlier than maybe I, you know, I would have otherwise that being, say, the CEO of a company, you are the capital allocator for that company. That is your job. Like that is your main job. And even if that capital means hiring a person, you know, and it's more of that qualitative side of the business, you're allocating capital to that. So when I kind of go back to earlier when we were bootstrapping and allocating capital to pay for the freight or not, if I could just drive my van down there and load it up, like those are decisions you have to make as a CEO to save money, to make payroll, to cover cash flow gaps, to make investments on a plant. So say, for example, our beverage company gets to capacity. Well, we have to figure out where the next plant's going to be. How big is it going to be? What equipment are we going to put into it? What can we afford? So in every aspect of what I do, it's capital allocation. And so Buffett being the arguably the best capital allocator in the entire world, you can just easily imagine there's a lot you can learn from him. And then beyond that, I would say that from reading his letters, what really stuck with me is how he treats his shareholders like partners. And I genuinely really think he does think this way. It's just over decades, you just see it written over and over, you see it at the meetings. And so when we took on investment, that kind of excited me in a similar way because I had done the bootstrapping thing and I was at a point where I was like, I want this experience. I want to know what it's like to have investors, to have shareholders that I have to be accountable to, that I can write letters for, that I can you know, make proud, make a good return on. So that philosophy of bringing on shareholders, treating them like partners really stuck with me. And I think it's a big, important piece if you're going to raise outside capital. And then lastly, there's a few other points from Buffett that I like. One is keeping things really simple, sometimes doing a deal on a handshake. I mean, that kind of simple. And I think it's Buffett who said this, but you can't make a good deal with a bad person. That is something I found to be very true in business. When I was in the music industry, your whole career was based on your reputation. I found that when it comes down to just dollars and cents type businesses, people don't really care as much. They'll burn you, they'll move on. And the reputation thing is not always in consideration. I think Buffett has been very mindful of his reputation, how he treats people. And that's something that stuck with me as well. Yeah. That last point kind of reminds me of, I think it's Guy Spear. He talks all the time about compounding goodwill, You know, work with people who just give, 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 and they expect nothing in return. Like, Who doesn't want to work with that type of person? And having that type of attitude yourself when you're you know working with your employees, your shareholders, your customers, that compounding of goodwill, I think can provide such good returns in ways that you might not even expect. Trey, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was one of my favorite conversations to date, and I'm really glad you took the time to come onto the show. Before we close it out, you know the drill. I'd like to give you a handoff to you know Better Booch, We Study Billionaires, anything else you'd like to share. I really appreciate it, Clay. And I got to say, it's a little bizarre to be on this side of the table. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. And um, if people want to follow me, you can go to Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. I have a lot of episodes on We Study Billionaires. So go ahead and follow that podcast. And if you want to check out Better Booch, just go to betterbooch.com. We're on all the social media channels with the same handle. So I encourage people to check that out. Thank you, Trey. Appreciate it. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.